Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. People of the US, great news. The Formula One Circus is coming to Miami this weekend. And we've got everything you need to know on P1 with Matt and Tommy. The Formula One podcast from Stack. It doesn't matter if you're an F1 veteran or hardly watch a race. If you want a fun breakdown of the biggest stories from this weekend's race, we've got you covered. Join us for previews and reaction episodes from practice, qualifying and the race itself, plus our full Driver Rankings podcast early next week. You'll be armed with enough info to make you look like a bona fide expert when the race rolls back around next year, or at least when you see your friends next week. Search P1 with Matt and Tommy in your podcast app to subscribe and listen now. The season is winding down. What will you remember most about it? Without the backdrop of fans providing football's soundtrack, its colour and meaning, taking it beyond just a scoreline, it's not goals or games that particularly stand out as defining. This was the campaign of action, of change, of fan empowerment, of players finding their voices and using it in the strongest of ways. On the pitch, statements against racism have now become commonplace. Leeds and Manchester United, the latest to take a knee this afternoon. But much of the abuse He's a hero on the pitch and one of Manchester United's highest earning players. But Marcus Rashford hasn't forgotten his roots. He has raised £20 million to supply meals to families in what he calls the pandemic of food poverty. As explored in the previous episode of Between the Lines, the Super League waving the briefest of hellos before crashing and burning in 48 hours is the distinguishing mark of the season. How the game progresses will largely be shaped by it, and this podcast, which has painted the big off-pitch stories over the past year, will walk through the way forward by revisiting major themes from past episodes. Will there finally be a solution for the rampant abuse on social media? Former Arsenal striker Thierry Henry was the first to walk away from social media last month, citing the toxic levels of abuse. Will football implement what the experts have been pushing for in terms of head injury protocols? Football needs to get real, it needs to wake up, it needs to get serious. Not next year, not next month, not next week, now. What will happen with football policing given the air of protests now permeating the game. Some protesters soon decided to go further, and ultimately onto the pitch itself. The place of stirring feats of football occupied. On Tackling the Trolls, back in September, we discussed abuse on social media in depth and why the platforms were reactive rather than proactive. A recent four-day boycott from players, clubs and stakeholders across football has led to a significant development which Matt Hemsworth talks us through. 
Matt, the last time we spoke regarding social media abuse, we said that the only way to move the dial would be through legislation because you have to sort of hold the social media companies responsible and hurt them where it matters most, which would be financially. We've got the online safety bill, which was mentioned in the Queen's speech, which is being put forward to Parliament. Do you think that would help? I think I think it will. And, um, you know, much has been said about the boycott and, and the pressure that sports brought to bear. And, um, and there, there are many people that know the social media industry or the social media giants well and would know that actually the amount of revenues they, they get from sport are significant, but but there's still a drop in the ocean compared to, um, you know, their wide stretch across the world, particularly in the States, et cetera. Um, so where the pressure has come to bear, I think, has been on our own government. You know, uh, football is our national game, and that's been the at the forefront of the campaigning. And, you know, people have been campaigning for a long, long time, some really great and brave voices within the game of football. Uh, and we always think of Marcus Rashford as uh, probably had the best pandemic out of everybody, but some real pressure on the government. Um, and, you know, the, the, the pressure that's come to bear has started to see some tangible results now. And, um, you know, if social media companies want to make profit in certain jurisdictions, they're going to have to abide by the laws in those jurisdictions. And they're just sort of staying the right side of the line on that as so far as they possibly can. And I think the online safety bill is going to uh, increase the pressure on that. And one thing that I've always been keen on is for social media to be regulated in some way. Um, television, newspapers are regulated for good or for bad and um, social media companies haven't been. So when we let our teenagers go on these platforms, we know that, use the analogy I use when I talk to young groups of football players, there hasn't been a grown-up that's checked everything. But when we let our kids go on Netflix, we know there's been a grown-up that's checked everything. They know that something's appropriate for 15 or over 12 or over parental guidance. That's not happening on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter and everything else. Now, part of the plan with the online safety bill would be to fine companies up to £18 million or 10% of their annual global turnover, whichever is higher. Now, that's a significant amount of money if you're found to be in breach of having the proper protection measures in place and takedown measures. But is it going to be any easier for these social media giants to monitor their platforms or do you think the financial threat actually forces them to be more proactive i think it goes beyond the financial threat actually i mean this is about 18 million to you and i that sounds like a huge amount of money but in the grand scheme of the turnover of these companies it's probably not a huge amount but what happens um you say imagine twitter or, or facebook uh, receive a top level fine. I mean, that top level fine will be will be reserved for companies that are taking no real action at all, or the most egregious breaches of the regulations, whatever they end up being. Um, the reputational impact on Facebook or Twitter of being hit with an eighteen million pound fine is huge. You know, when we think about the Information Commissioner's Office. Uh, uh, it, putting huge fines on companies for data breaches or, or, or security lapses. It's not so much the fine that hits them hard. It's the reputational impact. And, and this is why campaigning is important because Facebook and Twitter respond when they feel as they need to respond to um, protect their reputation. You know, we see the statements that they put out in response to the social media boycott and everything else involved. They do that 
Um, maybe I'm being cynical, but they do that not necessarily because they genuinely do want to take action over it, but because they need to protect their reputation, which ultimately protects their bottom line. You mentioned the boycott there, and that's actually put pressure on the government to get this legislation closer to over the line. It's been something like six years in the making. But the way football came together, and not just individual players, but the associations, the clubs, news organizations, pretty much everyone involved in the sport took a collective stand and quite a lengthy one. A lot of people were asking, well, did it really do anything? There's still abuse around, you know, the social media companies didn't react in any way, but what it did actually do, and Oliver Dowden spoke about it in saying that it has really hit home how much this legislation is needed. I think I think that's absolutely right. I don't think we should underestimate the influence that football has in this country. It's a national game. Um And I, I think back actually to the 1980s when um, black footballers were, I guess, almost encouraged not to speak out, to just get on. Uh, it's something you have to deal with, etc. Um, it's a really unfortunate part of our past, I think, that because we are now in a situation where football, I think, can, has the ability to do lots of good and football players have the ability to do lots of good. These young working class boys are being hurt. You know, they're, they're, they're being paid huge amounts because of their talent. Um, and, you know, they are huge public figures. And I referred to Marcus Rashford before. I have so much respect for him and his team and everything that they've done. And I think football has been hugely influential on our government. And, um, you know, it may well be that Twitter uh, and Instagram, Facebook, would not be prepared to to to, to listen or, or, or wouldn't feel pressured at home in their offices in California. But at Downing Street, you know, more people are interested in, you know, who's going to win the Premier League than um, voting elections, um, which is a sad truth, of course, but it is a truth. So therefore the influence on football is absolutely vast. So I think um, football uh, or people within football, a lot of people within football, uh, particularly the players, can be commended for the stance they've taken. You work as well with a lot of female footballers and on another one of the Between the Lines episode, we did touch on being a female in this environment and the added abuse that courts. You have dealt with many differing sorts of cases with female footballers. How do you see that moving forward? Would this bill help them as well? Or do you think that the abuse that women in and around the game suffer somewhat goes under the radar because they don't have the same profile as their male counterparts, especially the ones that play for the bigger clubs? Because like you say, the social media companies really care about reputational damage. So when Paul Pogba, for example, is tweeting that he suffered abuse, it's very different to if a player from Stockport County has suffered abuse or if a female footballer has. Wow, it's, it's, it's such an interesting question and there's so much you could dive into it on. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of education that needs to happen uh, within society um, I, as, as you know, my colleague Lee Nicholl is a, a football player in the championship with Crystal Palace. And I have taken a lot of time with Lee to see some of the abuse that she receives. Um, some of which I've actually seen today in a meeting with Lee. 
and some of the abuse is absolutely sickening and it is very gender specific very sexualized and it goes centuries beyond social media of course you know the way that men have treated women throughout the centuries i think social media has given uh, an outlet to those kind of aggressive sexualized men that they're out there and unfortunately they are a minority but unfortunately they're a significant minority um does it go under the radar yes i think it does but i think we've got a lot of very very impressive women yourself included bianca westwood and all, all the other women that spoke on your particular episode where you spoke about this level of abuse and you know um there are a lot of people speaking out and being heard uh, and that noise is growing. And I think of things like the uh, the protests in relation to Sarah Everard. There were people who were suggesting, well, these women shouldn't have gathered during the middle of a pandemic and they shouldn't have been putting pressure on the police, et cetera. Well, you know, I kind of look back at the suffragettes. Um, you know, think of Emily Davison jumping in front of a horse. Well, people at the time, no doubt, she shouldn't have, said, shouldn't have done that and it was hugely dangerous. But look at the influence that comes from that. So actually, in a strange kind of way, I guess what I'm getting at is that social media can actually be... Um, a positive change because you know all these women that are speaking out they've got a platform it's not just public figures like you with a podcast it's normal members of the public normal women who can speak out on social media and say enough is enough because women were being abused long before social media so I think there are some glimmers of hope there and it, in specific relation to women's sport um, it's something I feel passionate about working alongside a women's football player um, but we really want to get the message out to some of those brilliantly talented girls and women that play professional sport that now their time is coming women's sport is starting to get the focus it deserves um they are a long way from getting the money that they deserve but they're getting closer to it and i think this year is a crucial time for them to start realizing that they are going to have the level of profile or similar level of profile of some of their male counterparts and what will come with that is they'll continue to get misogynistic and sexualized abuse or homophobic abuse. But at the same time, they're going to get an increased um, uh, view on them, more people looking at their social media accounts, more followers. So therefore their own mistakes, uh, their own indiscretions are going to be picked up as well. So it might become a bit of a perfect storm. So I think it's really important that um, female athletes are ready for that, ready to protect themselves, uh, ready to make sure their online security is good, make sure that their conduct's good as well. Because although as a man that works in the industry and uh, uh, spend my entire time pulling my hair out about the conduct of men, still also really important that we, um, uh, that we, we coach our female athletes as well, that they need to make sure that, that their online conduct is good. Um, it is a big question, which is why I've waffled on it. But um, yeah, there are some, um, I, th I think women's sport is underheard because it's underviewed, but it's growing probably faster than the men's game ever, as ever has. It's grown so much in the last 10 years. And I think people are starting to hear those strong female voices. Football has still not solidified its concussion protocols enough, nor introduced temporary subs to allow players to be properly assessed after a head injury. This problem was bigger in football than it is in rugby, than it is in American football, possibly than it even is in boxing. Dr. Willie Stewart, who we spoke to in December, explains why this is unacceptable. Dr. Willie, when we last spoke about head trauma in football and the sport's reaction to it, we mentioned that permanent concussion subs would be trialed. And there was a big need and underlining from yourself and Headway 
and many people involved, including Ryan Mason, who nearly lost his life uh, due to the head injury he suffered, in saying that temporary concussion substitutes would be more helpful. Now that we've seen how permanent concussion subs would work, do you still maintain your view that it's still not the correct solution? Unfortunately, yeah. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm always prepared to revise my opinion as, as time goes on and knowledge develops and experience develops. But I think on this occasion, uh, I think what we've seen is that the, the permanent substitution really isn't a, a solution in, in high-level sport. Um, you know, we've got high pressure, you know, high speeds, uh, uh, you know, very difficult circumstances for proper assessment. And it's the assessment that needs to be improved not the interchange of players. Um, so the, the problem remains that the doctors who are looking after players with potential brain injuries still don't have adequate time pitch side to assess the player. We've already seen FIFPRO and the PFA making this known. They've pushed IFAB to look intensely at introducing temporary concussion subs because there's been cases where we've witnessed the permanent concussion sub not working. West Ham with Diop and Sheffield United with Baldock comes to mind. Well, I mean, what's, what's, yeah, exactly. what's, what's become clear is that because the assessment opportunity and assessment strategies protocols haven't changed, is that, you know, in football regulations, is that while the player is being assessed, they, they have to be removed temporarily from the, to the, 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 the side of the pitch while the game goes on. So suddenly, the team who are trying to assess a player with a potentially serious brain injury are playing with a player down. They're playing, they're playing with a player less. So actually, they're, they're penalised for, for trying to assess somebody's brain injury. Uh, and that, of course, just adds to the pressure because now we've got people who are saying, well, hang on, we're a player down. You know, we, we've, got to get, we've got to get back on equal terms again. Do we make this permanent substitution? Or do we do we try and complete a rushed assessment and get the player back on the park? And and I think you know the temptation is always to try and get the player back on the park rather than start to eat through substitutions. So that's where you know football really needs to learn from the experience of the last decade or more from other sports and say while this player is being assessed, the team should not be penalised by being a, a player down. They should have another player on temporarily filling that spot. Let the player be assessed properly, and then a, a decision can be made. In terms of your research, has there been anything else that has come to light since we last spoke? Yeah, so one of the things that we've been working on, there's a couple of things, but one of the things specifically in the football side is we've been looking at uh, the, the management of concussion in, in female versus male athletes, so, so sex differences in management. And we looked at data from... Uh, a, a high school uh, football uh, cohort across Michigan in the US. So it's a very large numbers of high school football athletes that we looked at concussion management. And, and quite strikingly, and, and you know, I'd say surprisingly, but, but unfortunately it was kind of what we predicted, but, but strikingly what we saw was that the risk of concussion in the girls was about just under double that of the boys. The, the reasons that the girls were being concussed was different to the boys that girls were more likely to be left on the park with their concussion and, and only be diagnosed after the match than the boys. And that as a result, all of this added up to the girls taking a couple of days longer to recover. So there's clearly a, a big difference in approach to and management of concussion 
in girls versus boys, and and, the, and this is a population with with greater risk, and that's something that again needs to be addressed pretty urgently. Like you say, that needs to be addressed pretty urgently, and football in general, in terms of both male and female sport, needs to be stronger in their reaction to these protocols and implement better ones. So just moving forward, how do you see the perfect solution formulating? What would it be? So, I mean, I think at at elite level, you know, I think they need to adopt the the same management approaches that that have been taken up in other sports. So so temporary substitution to allow adequate assessment and introduce decent protocols for, for concussion assessment um, that, that go beyond the current fairly inadequate ones that, that are rushed through in a couple of minutes. I, I, anything but that elite level with experienced and trained doctors and video reviews and referees and all these other things, then, then an if in doubt sit them out policy must be pursued. I mean, that, that there's no other option. There's no way of diagnosing concussion on or off part with, with any great confidence. And so if in doubt sit them out must be pursued. But across all sport, I think what, what we and others have demonstrated is that research, which is largely based on male athletes and male response to injury and male detection of injury, is wholly inadequate when you're talking about sports that are played by women as men as much as, much as men these days. Um, and so I think what we're doing is we're, we're learning how to spot concussions in men, but, but that doesn't apply to women. We need to, we need to think of perhaps sex-specific protocols for concussion management and assessment. One other thing that, that has developed, it's, there's no research data on it at the moment, but one other thing that's developed is just, again, the comparison of football to other sport is that, uh, you know, we, we have we have just started, got rolling, a project to look at brain health. You know, what, what's how are brains of former footballers functioning before they develop dementia, which we think is incredibly important because uh, that's a way of, of trying to uh, um, figure out ways of, of preventing dementia onset. Now, that, that study has got going in rugby players, and we're going to be studying rugby players in great depth with great support from rugby authorities, great support from rugby institutions, and funding from Alzheimer's Society. But no such study is available or running in football, and yet football is the biggest sport with the problem of dementia proven. So. I just think it's startling that football again is dragging its, its feet on on trying to make progress, not just in you know counting out how many headers there are in the game, but actually in trying to change the course of brain health in their former athletes that we know are at risk of dementia. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. People of the U.S., great news. The Formula One Circus is coming to Miami this weekend. And we've got everything you need to know on P1 with Matt and Tommy, the Formula One podcast from Stack. It doesn't matter if you're an F1 veteran or hardly watch a race. If you want a fun breakdown of the biggest stories from this weekend's race, we've got you covered. Join us for previews and reaction episodes from practice, qualifying and the race itself, plus our full Driver Rankings podcast early next week. You'll be armed with enough info to make you look like a bona fide expert when the race rolls back around next year, or at least when you see your friends next week. Search P1 with Matt and Tommy in your podcast app to subscribe and listen now. This week at Sukarnov. If you're wondering how Ashwood City Football Club dealt with the news of the European Super League, then binge the award-winning mockumentary The Offensive this summer. I think a few of the players are considering taking to social media. No, fucking no. Okay, turn off the fucking Wi-Fi for all I get. Tear down the 4G mark. Patrick, you've got a Zoom call with the other 14 right now. The 14? What? The remaining Premier League clubs. Oh, for fuck's sake. I don't want to talk to those fucking losers. Or if you'd rather get stuck into a comedy film podcast, why not check out Clash of the Titles? The podcast where two films with something in common go head-to-head to decide which one is better. Their latest episode saw Red Heat up against Tango and Cash. In both films, I think someone says, where did you learn to drive like that? Which no one ever says in real life. Oh, I had lessons. Uh, but a nice callback. <laughs> you know, how, you know the bars, Matt, are you? <laughs> how many times did you take to pass? You passed first time. What about your written test? <laughs> All that... And a whole lot more at Sukarnov. As explored by Between the Lines in November, football policing in the UK has unjustly viewed the game as a public disorder threat. With supporters returning to stadiums and given the rise of fan protests following the failed Super League, Owen West predicts the path forward. So looking back, um, as we get towards the end of the season, I think the first observation I'd make is just to remind ourselves of just how outstanding fans have been during this public health crisis. You know, we've continued to see support for communities, food banks, fans rallying around and being very highly responsible. And we contrast this to some of the calls we had earlier on around neutral venues and fears that fans would uh, gather at training grounds and all of those things um, turned out not to be the case. I think it's really important that we remind ourselves that the vast, overwhelming majority of fans 
have actually been exemplary during this this crisis and and have really showed themselves to be a a really important part of communities. In terms of the challenges um, ahead, then um, I think the most obvious thing has been the phenomenon of protest and protests within a public health crisis. Obviously a difficult uh, situation, but made worse by the utter confusion of the legality of protests. So think about Sarah Everard, think about other vigils and protests that have happened and, and calls that they were illegal and should be banned, etc., etc. And the government really haven't helped with this because they have consistently failed to... Um, set out the legal position for protest. Uh, my view is, and it has been all along, that protest is still within the Human Rights Act, Articles 10 and 11, is still legal. Uh, and you're now starting to see more and more protests around various things which I think support that view. So we move ahead and we think about some of the protests that are currently happening and the situation is going to be unclear. We may go into a, a, a full uh, ending of, of restrictions. We could go back into a tiered system. We could go back into a regional lockdown system. And so it's very unclear at this moment in time where the full return of fans to the full matchday experience w will happen and what that will look like. Clearly, events with Rangers and Man United of late have reignited calls for delays to a full return and reignited the sort of calls that we saw around neutral venues about risk and threat and about public order. So the position in relation to a full return remains unclear in the, in the short term. Instead of tackling violence against women, the government has prioritised giving the police the power to prohibit the fundamental freedoms of protest that the British public hold dear. And by giving the police this discretion to use these powers some of the time... The protests we've seen from Manchester United fans against the Glazers' ownership in particular is under threat from legislation. I think what's really troubling for me in the short and, uh, and medium term is the bill that's currently making its way through Parliament, which is the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, a huge piece of legislation. But there is some parts in there that really concern me regarding protest, and I've written and spoken about this elsewhere, as have a number of people. What that bill does in relation to um, protest is it will significantly restrict protest. It will mean that protests can no longer be um, disruptive, can no longer be noisy. There are some really subjective calls in there for the police to make about what is disruptive, what is excessively noisy. There's things in there about whether or not a protest or an activity causes people serious unharm, sorry, serious unease in the area. There's things in that bill as well, which means that big business and, and commercial entities can also have a role in deciding whether or not a protest can go ahead. And these at the moment are focused around um, the use of, of Article 10, Article 11. They're focused around protests and around demonstrations. But as I mentioned with Rangers, as I mentioned with Man United, and as we get into this whole European Super League debate, then there is big beginning to be a bit of a grey area between what the fans are doing and, and whether or not that constitutes a protest or not.
So fans need to think carefully about their role in uh, in activism around European Super League, around concerns about owners and that sort of thing, because this is going to start to touch into that police crime sentencing and courts bill. Amanda Jacks from Fair Cop has written about this recently and talked about some of the implications that might be seen for fans that want to have a big walk-up, a big mass walk-up to the ground, or that are out there chanting, making a noise, making themselves seen and heard. Well, the new legislation might well mean that that falls within the uh, the ambit of it being too disruptive, too noisy, and making people feel too uneasy in the local area. Similarly, with... Pro- with um, big businesses and and, uh, commercial enterprises. So if there is fan activity near a company headquarters and that company headquarters takes the view that fans are being disruptive to traffic or to their organisation, then they can legitimately make a claim to the police to say that that activity is causing them disruption and then there'll be an expectation on the police to do something about it. So really serious restrictions on people's democratic rights and freedoms, in my view, and the the glaring potential to increase, not decrease, the potential for conflict between the police and for protesters, and potentially for fans, because if we get to a situation where we have this sort of tone and temperature around protests, then we can reasonably expect to see that tone and temperature in relation to fans because let's be let's be honest and frank about it the biggest mass gathering of people every saturday uh, in the football season is obviously football fans it's not protesters so I, I can see us getting into a position where government are potentially going to look to push to the police to use some of these powers on a match day to disrupt um the activity of fans and fans need to take that uh, that on board very seriously because this is a piece of legislation that is going to massively restrict what fan culture can and can't do. And for me, that's a real worry uh, once we get past the pandemic period and the longer term sort of future of policing and security issues around grounds and with fan groups. When I look back at the season, there have been contrasting feelings. Detachment at the emptiness of football without its colour and noise, without our shared experiences and the emotional bonds that elevate it just beyond the sport. There's a heavy dose of disillusionment and anger over using the pandemic to push self-interest and greed with plans like Project Big Picture and the Super League. But the overwhelming slant for me is a chance for change, for football to be governed better, for a more sustainable future. The advent of player and fan empowerment has been a welcome watch and also a driving force behind the shifting sands, behind the sense that we don't just have to accept things as they are and betray the soul of the sport we love. For years, A fan-led review into football by the government was just words in a manifesto. Now, it is reality. There is a push for an independent regulator, and we have to ask ourselves what role the FA serves in the modern climate. 
We're seeing legislation come into play that will help reduce the toxicity on social media platforms. Temporary concussion subs will have to become the norm. There is so much to do, but there is also so much to look forward to because it feels as though football has finally been wise to a wake-up call. Between the Lines will explore this future with you and is excited to. Thank you so much for listening to the series, for subscribing, offering reviews and for letting me know what subjects you want to hear about most. Enjoy the Euros, have a super summer filled with loads of hugs and all that good stuff and I'll catch you on the flip side. Between the Lines is a Stakhanov production. Written and narrated by me, Melissa Reddy. Our producer is Charlie Morgan. Our assistant producer is Natalie Wilson. The executive producers are John Teague and Luke Aaron Moore. Sound design and mixing is by Tom Wally. All music comes courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. People of the US, great news. The Formula One Circus is coming to Miami this weekend. And we've got everything you need to know on P1 with Matt and Tommy, the Formula One podcast from Stack. It doesn't matter if you're an F1 veteran or hardly watch a race. If you want a fun breakdown of the biggest stories from this weekend's race, we've got you covered. Join us for previews and reaction episodes from practice, qualifying and the race itself, plus our full Driver Rankings podcast early next week. You'll be armed with enough info to make you look like a bona fide expert when the race rolls back around next year, or at least when you see your friends next week. Search P1 with Matt and Tommy in your podcast app to subscribe and listen now.